If you're recording yourself, you know, the most important thing is starting with good sounds from the source. If you're recording live instruments, you know, that's, that's making sure the drums are tuned and the heads are in good condition. And, you know, your guitar tone is dialed in, you really putting some thought into what is the end result that I want and putting the time into pre-production to make sure you have your your sounds as crafted as you can before you even start recording. It's kind of like the fundamentals, you know, just understanding the the basics of, of audio and music production and how to get good sounds from the source and then get good signal into your DAW or into your, your mixing console. It's easy to get lost in today's music industry with constantly changing technology and where anyone with a computer can release their own music. But I'm gonna share with you why this is the best time to be an independent musician and it's only getting better. If you have high quality music, but you just don't know the best way to promote yourself so that you can reach the right people and generate a sustainable income with your music, we're gonna show you the best strategies that we're using right now to reach millions of new listeners every month without spending 10 hours a day on social media. We're creating a revolution in today's music industry, and this is your invitation to join me. I'm your host, Michael Walker. All right, so I'm really excited to be here today with Michelle Sabolchik Pedinato. She's a sound engineer who her first tour was with the Spin Doctors, you know, with the two the two princesses. Like, <laughs> as soon as, as as I heard that that was um, a band that you went on on tour with, um, that song Two Princesses has been like making a recurrence in, in my life. And I feel like I'm, <laughs> you know, changing changing diapers, and I'm like, you know, doing a bunch of dad stuff. Like, princess, before you. Um, she's also uh, worked with Jewel, Gwen Stefani, Kesha, Goo Goo Dolls, uh, many more, many more artists. And uh, she teaches mixing advice for uh, for producers, mixing engineers. And specifically, one thing that we had talked about that she really focuses on is EQ and how um, you can leverage EQ so that you don't necessarily have to rely on things like compression that might kill your mix. So I'm excited to talk more today about some of the opportunities for how you can um, use EQ and use some of these different uh, production tools in order to, to grow your music career. So Michelle, thanks so much for taking the time to be here today. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Awesome. So to start out with, I'd love to hear just a little bit about um, your story and how you got started with sound engineering and, and going on tour with, with all these, these massive artists. Yeah, it, it's um, it's kind of a, a long and twisted road, um, but I, I, it started out, you know, I grew up in the middle of nowhere, Pennsylvania, a tiny little coal town, and, you know, I, I music was always a big part of my life. Um, I played piano since I was a little kid and took lessons all through school, and I played for like, the church choir, the school chorus, and things like that, but I never really wanted to be a musician. I knew I just didn't have the chops. Like, I could read music and I could play, but I couldn't just sit down and jam and, you know, pick out songs and things like that. But it was more of a, um, you know, I did it for my own pleasure, but I still desperately wanted to be involved in, in music in, in some form. And, you know, it was back in, like, I grew up in the seventies and eighties where it was the days of vinyl. So I would spend hours in my room, just listening to my records. And, and while I was listening to the records, I'd be reading the cover, like the liner notes, you know, from cover to cover. And the one thing I noticed was every record had this thing called a recording engineer. And, you know, I was about 15 or 16 and I had no idea what that meant, but I thought, well, whoever this is, they have to be important because they're on every single record. So I started to, you know, do a little research and find out, you know, what does a recording engineer do? And I'm like, oh, they make the records. Cool. Well, that's what I want to do. So it, you know, became time in high school to, well, what am I going to be when I grow up? And um, I announced I was going to be a recording engineer and everyone from my family to my friends, to my teachers and school counselors were all like, you can't do that. You have to get a real job. 
And I, you know, and people would, uh, you know, I worked as a waitress through high school and everybody at work was like, what do you want to be a DJ? I'm like, no, I want to make records. I don't want to spin records, you know? So it was kind of a, a struggle to, to get people to take it seriously. And I had found... I knew like, I didn't know anything about it. I had no idea how to get started in the business. I didn't have any technical background. No one in my family was in, in the music business. I mean, as we lived about as far away from it as you could get, you know, I had no musicians in my family. So I figured, well, I'm going to have to go to school to learn how to do this. And I actually, at that time, there weren't very many schools that taught music production or recording engineering. There was, you know, a lot of schools like Berkeley and Juilliard and things if you were a performer, but as far as the technical side, there wasn't a lot of that. But I did find a school that had a um, recording arts program and I got accepted, but I think it was about a year, a month after I graduated, we found out that the uh, financial aid I was going to get wasn't quite enough for me to be able to afford to go there. I think there was like a $12,000, you know, a semester school. And I was only getting $5,000 an aid. I'm like, Oh, I don't have another 10 grand sitting around. So I can't, I can't do this. So I kind of plan B'd and and enrolled in uh, Penn state, which was like the local, you know, uh, Penn state campus for the the first year, figuring I'll save up my money and then switch schools the next year. So while I was in Penn state, I had, you know, I was a music major and I had one music course and I was just, you know, this is not going to get me where I need to be. And even if I go to the other school, this is not going to, you know, learning history and mathematics and, you know, what everything else is not what I want to learn. I want to learn the technology. So I um, started looking around and I, I found a school in Ohio called the Recording Workshop. And that was a about a four, four week program and it was basic recording arts and that's all they taught. So I enrolled there and I got a good background enough, you know, to, to kind of get my feet wet. And after that, I I got a job. There was a local radio station starting up. So I applied for a job. I said, hey, I'm a recording engineer. I want to make commercials. And they said, okay, well, you have to sell them first. So I was basically selling radio advertising for, oh, I don't know, about six or nine months. And, you know, every once in a while, I'd be able to record commercials and do that kind of thing. So during that time, I had a cousin who had recently moved to Nashville. And she said, well, why don't you come down here and stay with me and try and get a job here in Nashville? And this is back when, you know, Music Row was just lined with studio after studio and, and bands were still going into recording studios to make records. So I, uh, I took the bus. It was like, I, I still lived in Pennsylvania. So I took a bus to Nashville and I spent three weeks uh, walking around, you know, Music Row, handing out my resume, which was ridiculous because it had the recording workshop and WMGH, you know, nothing basically. But I, I thought, you know, I, I knew what I was doing and I'm knocking on every single door, handing out resumes, asking for a job and just being turned down left and right. And after about three weeks, I'm kind of like, yeah, this really isn't working. I still don't know what I need to know. I don't know how to get into this business. I don't really understand how it works. So I went back home and then shortly thereafter, I I heard about Full Sail in Florida. It's another big recording engineering school. And I enrolled there. And when I got to Full Sail, it was the first time that people actually said, yes, you can do this. You know, up until that point, everybody was trying to convince me to go back to college, get a degree, become a lawyer or a doctor or something that you can actually make a living at and, um, you know, fighting me on on my dream. And uh, I, I was just headstrong, like, no, this is what I want to do. This is my passion. Like, I can't not do this. So when I got to Full Sail, I was finally surrounded by people who said, yes, this is, a, you know, a career. This is a possibility. You can do this. And when I was in full sail, um, about four or five months into the program, we had our, our class on live sound. And up until that point, it never even occurred to me that live sound was a, a career. You know, I had been like, I want to make records. I want to mix music. 
and even though I'd gone to tons of concerts growing up, I never looked at the people working that show as people that were working for the actual artists and traveling with them. I just kind of took it like, oh, well, it's just the people that work here at the venue. So when I discovered that not only can you get paid to mix music, but you can get paid to travel the world mixing music for artists doing live shows, it was kind of like a, a light bulb went off. It was like, ding, 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 ding. This is for me. You know, that was it. I switched gears and decided to pursue live sound as um, my future career. And, and that was it. Once I graduated, I immediately went to work for a little local sound company. And I actually worked for free for a couple months because I was interning. And so I was working for free, but I have a, a few guys that I worked with who would bring me out as like a second on their show and pay me because they knew I was always saving their butt, you know, because I would remember to pack the truck with all the stuff that they forgot. And, and I was actually working my butt off trying to gain experience and just, you know, learn what I was doing. So they would, they were making like 50 bucks a night. They'd pay me $10 and buy me breakfast at the end of the night because I worked so hard. Um, but I did that for a while. And then I just, I, I moved around. Like I, I went where I could get work and I took every job I could get in, in music and audio. I did some assisting at studios. I worked for sound companies. I mixed local bands. I worked at nightclubs. I even worked at an AB department at an entertainment complex, but um, I did stagehand work. I just took every job that there was available to me that had something to do with audio, you know, not knowing that this isn't where I'm going to stay, but I'm going to learn what everything I can while I'm trying to get on tour. And then my first tour came in 1992 when I got my, my uh, offer to go on tour with the band Spin Doctors. And, and that was it. I never looked back. I've I've been touring full-time since then, up until COVID. Awesome. Well, that's, that's quite quite the journey and certainly a sweet gig, you know, traveling with your favorite bands, uh, getting to be a part of that, that like music go to exotic locations. And one thing that really stuck out too with your story, and I think a lot of people listening to this can probably relate. I know I, I certainly can relate to it, is you know, kind of early on pursuing a career in music um, and kind of, you know, dealing with the doubt, both from like mm. family members or even sometimes there's like some self-doubt um, and just, you know, people who maybe they have the best intentions, but they don't necessarily just see that as a possibility. And um, so I can definitely relate with, with that. And I think that it's awesome that you had the drive and the commitment to be able to kind of stick through with it. And, and I think that's one thing that's really important for anyone listening to this right now is like to know that, it's normal, it's natural to feel resistance. And specifically like in this industry, um, when you're doing something like this, where it's like a passion as well as, as a career, it's normal to get <laughs> resistance and you need to like, you need to work on building that, that level of faith and belief and commitment to be willing to, to make it happen. Yeah. Um, so I think that's, that's awesome. Yeah. I mean, and that's a huge thing. It's like, you, you have to believe in yourself. You know, if, if this is your passion, you know, uh, like once my, my, you know, in, in high school, I had my, my music teacher, when I told him this was what I wanted to do, he's like, well, why don't you, you know, at least go to college and get a degree in music therapy or music education. So you have something to fall back on. And I, I just, my reply was like, I don't need anything to fall back on because I'm going to do this. And, you know, there was so much pressure, you know, first trying to convince me not to follow this as a career. And then second, to have a degree to fall back on. And, in my mind, like I knew that, that nothing was going to stop me, that I was going to just keep going until, and persisting until I got to where I wanted to be. But, and that's, I think it's important that people have to realize that you're going to have, you know, doors slammed in your face tons of times before somebody gives you that opportunity. And you can't just say, okay, I give up after the second or third person says, no, we're not going to hire you, or we're not going to give you this shot. You just have to keep persevering because, you know, it, it's not that, you know, to me, I looked at it like, well, this wasn't the right spot for me. So that's why the door was closed. And I'm just going to keep going till that right spot opens up 
and I end up where I'm supposed to be. And, and um, yeah, in the meantime, you also have the people who, you know, a lot of people have dreams, but they don't have the, the confidence to go after those dreams for whatever reason. They're like, I always wanted to be an artist, but I, I'm working at this factory because it's a regular job and I get a regular paycheck. But I always wanted to be a painter. And, you know, so people who, who didn't have the, the courage to go after their dreams will be the first people to say, oh, you can't do that. You can't do that because it makes them feel like, you know, less because they didn't pursue their dreams. So they get a lot of pushback from that as well. And, and it's, a, it's a tough thing to, you know, to, to deal with because you've got to have enough confidence in yourself to know that, well, just because they didn't, it didn't happen for them doesn't mean it's not going to happen for me. You know, mm. and and it's a tough thing to to um to persevere through. One hundred percent, and and I think that it's so valuable. Like one of the part pieces in your story is really finding a community of people that you finally like surrounded yourself with them, and like and they supported your vision, your belief. And um, I think it's really important for everyone to be able to to find to find those people that do encourage you, and that you know, especially people like mentors or people that have accomplished the thing you want to accomplish, who just like who they are is like, is, is emitting at like the right, the right frequency where it's exactly. like, you, absolutely. Yeah. It kind of pulls, pulls you up. So having all this experience as a, as a mixing engineer and uh, now, you know, working with a lot of artists and other mixing engineers and kind of helping to support them in, in their careers. What are some of the biggest um, challenges or mistakes that you see musicians making when it comes to uh, mixing their music? You know, it's it's funny because even with with engineers and musicians alike, I, I see a lot of people they they go about it kind of backwards. You know, they they think that they need to spend a, a lot of money on on gear and plugins and and getting the perfect listening space and and um, you know the perfect listening environment and that's all good if you have the budget. But even then, you know if what you're missing is the, the basics and the under, understanding of the craft. And without that, it doesn't matter if you've got, you know, a million dollar studio, if you don't understand the recording and mixing process, you're still going to end up with garbage. You know, it, it's, it's kind of, you know, you need to understand things like how to craft your sound, how to get great sounds from the source, uh, how to get good input signal to your DAW, um, how to use EQ and panning and balancing your levels and um, how to use compression correctly, the, the fundamentals of recording and mixing. And so I, I just see like so many people thinking they have to have this piece of gear, that piece of gear. And, and it's, it's not their fault because, you know, honestly, everywhere you look, you've got somebody trying to sell you their product. It's like, oh, you need to have Oral X and you need to have the Waves Horizon bundle and the UA audio plugins and, and this piece of gear and that piece of gear. And they're all trying to convince you that what you need is what they're selling. And you need that to be able to create a high quality product. So it's easy to fall prey to that. But um, you know, it, it's a matter of if you don't have the basics, you, you, you know, the gear is not going to fix a bad mix. The gear will only make a good mix better. There's a, I saw a young woman post in a forum the other day about, she was so excited. She finally got her first DAW and she's setting up her home studio and she has this inter interface and logic. And now what plugins do I need to buy? And she didn't have a clue on, you know, she didn't understand what gain was. She didn't understand the signal flow of getting the instrument into her DAW. Um, she didn't understand EQ panning. She was just looking for, give me all of the list of the software that I need to buy. That's going to do all of this for me. And, and that's the problem. I think, you know, it's the gear and the software is not going to do the job that, that you should be able to do. And when you have those skills, like when you actually do learn the fundamentals, then it doesn't matter what gear you have, you can come up with a, a great quality product. So I think it's just, you know, from the, 
the the nature of you know consumerism these days like everywhere you turn you're being bombarded with buy me buy me you need this you need this you forget about well there's actual fundamentals that you need to learn and when you have those you can you know they will be with you everywhere you know even if you don't have that piece of gear you can still make a, a great quality product that's so good you know and the, the what popped up in my mind as you're as you're sharing that was you know kind of like uh, having a really expensive guitar you know, I, I have a, a Martin guitar and I love my Martin guitar, but like, it's not the most important thing. <laughs> you know, like the most mm-hmm. important thing is like, if you can play the guitar and you know how to like, you know, the guitar is just a tool. And like you said, it's not going to fix if you can't play guitar, you know, it's going to, if you can play guitar, it's going to make it sound better. Um, so I think that, yeah, that's a really, a really good point that, yeah. um, that you know you can get the fundamentals down you can get really good with the the certain plugins and probably like a lot of the plugins too even like the the stock default plugins if you're really good at them can do a lot of like what the more expensive plugins can do too well it's funny too because um i'm always like i speak at a lot of uh colleges and i speak at full sale a lot in different conferences and i I always have students asking me yeah i'm getting ready to graduate and and what what plugins should i buy and I tell them none. Well, they're like, well, what plugins do you use? And they're shocked when I say, I don't use any plugins. You know, like when I'm mixing on tour, I, I literally use um, my desk and what's available on the desk. I don't have a, a rack full of plugins or outboard gear. I use, you know, proper gain, the EQ, the, uh, you know, some basic compression and gates and um, a little bit of a, effects. And that's it. Like I don't have racks full of, well, I've got this, you know, plugin for my acoustics. I've got this plugin for my my overall mix, I've got, you know, five, six layers of compression on everything. It's, it's pretty much it's bare bones. And it's, you know, if I can make a great mix with that for the artists I work for, then there's no reason that you can't do that as well, you know? And uh, yeah, it's funny. It's, it's, you know, like talking about the guitar, you know, when I worked with Mr. Big, Paul Gilbert, you know, I've seen him where uh, we had a support act somewhere in Europe somewhere, and it was, you know, a, kind of a younger band and they were okay, but they weren't great. And, and the guitar player had a, a pretty crappy setup and, you know, he's, he's there and he's sound checking and, and, you know, it doesn't sound that great, but Paul picks up the guitar and it just sounds completely different because you had the difference in, in uh, the, uh, you know, the ability, um, you know, if you're a great guitar player, you can walk in with a, a pile of junk and it'll sound like amazing, you know, but if you are just playing guitar for a year and you're still kind of getting the, ba- the basic technique down, it's not going to sound that great. Or you could be playing through a beautiful setup and it would still sound bad because you don't have the technique. So. Mm, 100%. Awesome. So one thing that I know that we talked a little bit about that, that you focus on a lot is like EQ and how to use EQ properly. And I remember you mentioning like some different exercises that I think you said you can even do like vocally yourself that kind of help mm-hmm. you to, to train your ear. Can you tell, so you talk a little bit about EQ specifically and like, you know, what are some of the biggest challenges that people, people have or mistakes or misconceptions when it comes to like using EQ effectively? Yeah. You know, the, I think the biggest thing is, um, especially with the musicians, a lot of my musician friends, they tend to think EQ is this super technical, really difficult thing to understand. And, and even like, you know, the younger, uh, uh, sound engineers that are just getting started, they, they, they'll tell me like, well, I, I know what EQ is, but I really don't know what to do with it. Like, I don't know how things are supposed to sound. So um, what, what I've, I've been doing is, is teaching it in a three-step process. And, and the thing about EQ, it's really not that technical. There's a variety of different filters, which you know, kind of have specific purposes, but you're technically just doing a little booster cut here and there. You know, that's it. The hardest part about EQ is learning the frequencies that you need to adjust. 
And that's where I think people struggle the most is because a lot of people will use, um, you know, there's all kinds of frequency training apps out there. And those are okay once you actually start learning frequencies to, to kind of keep them fresh and, and, you know, to practice with. But when you're just learning frequencies, it can be really difficult because the apps are based on memorization. So you're hearing, what you're hearing is like a pure tone or a sine wave through the app, which is not the same as hearing. Like if you're hearing a 400 Hertz tone, that doesn't sound the same as you would if you were having, playing an acoustic guitar that's speeding back at 400, you know, it's a bit of a different sound. So I think that's where people will use the apps and they memorize these tones, but then when they're hearing that same frequency in music or a mix, it's, it's different and it's not relating. So one of the techniques um, I teach is using your, your voice, using your words to learn frequencies. There's a, a list of specific words that you, you basically get a little RTA app and, and an RTA will show you on a graph what frequencies are present in the sound that it's picking up. So you can get one for your phone. There's a lot of free ones out there. And basically you'll, you'll say these words like who, and, and you, you want to say like who in the low register. Um, I'll back up a little bit, you know, like you always hear the sound person saying, check one, two into a microphone. Well, what most people don't realize is that they're saying those words for specific reasons. Um, when you say check, the ch in check is kind of in the, in the high mids around the four or five K range. And that's where sounds tend to be harsh. And when you say one, it's in the mid range where things can sound honky or, or boxy. And the two is usually in the low range where things can sound muddy. So by saying check one, two, you're, you're pronouncing those frequency ranges to find out where are the problems. So by using your words, like, you know, you take the RTA and you say who, and you see what frequency that is in your voice and say that you see, okay, when I say who that's 250 Hertz. When you're mixing and you hear something kind of low and muddy and you're like, I hear this frequency. And then I say, who, and if it's that frequency, then you know, oh, it's 250 that I need to adjust. Or if it's close, it's a little bit higher or a little bit below, at least you're in the ballpark, you know, rather than just completely guessing, well, is that 400? Is it 160? Is it 800? You know, by learning specific frequencies and how they correspond to certain words in your voice, it gives you a place to start. And it also gives you something tangible to relate to, you know, um, another way is by just, you know, learning the frequencies of sounds that you hear every day. You know, if you have, um, say your doorbell is 630 Hertz and you know, that sound of your doorbell, whenever you hear that something that sounds like your doorbell, you know, oh, that's 630 Hertz or, um, your car horn, it's 1.6 K. So, you know, what 1.6 K sounds like, because you can hear your car horn in your head. So it's all about like finding something tangible that, that you know what it sounds like and just learning what frequency that is. Hmm. That's, that's super interesting. Um, I never realized that the check one, two, that's what it was. Meant. I mean, I, I've done it like with a microphone mm -hmm. <laughs> as a performer, but I never realized that, that that was something that sound engineers could specifically use to determine like different frequencies. So you, you talked a little bit about you kind of this like three-step three step framework uh, in terms of mastering EQ. So I'm, I'm curious, like what, what are those three steps on that, that framework? So, yeah. So the first step is, is learning how to hear. You have to learn how to listen like a producer. Um, you know, we all use our ears every day, but um, there's a difference between hearing and, and listening. So it's kind of like it's, it's ear training, but it's, it's called critical listening. 
And, and that is being able to listen to an instrument or a piece of music or a mix and really break it down to its finest little parts. You know, the nuances of what does the snare tone sound like? What does the guitar tone sound like? You know, is the bass, is it fat and round? Is it a slappy sounding bass? You know, being able to hear all those, you know, really definitive characteristics. Because when you can pick out what you like about a sound or what you don't like, then you know what you need to adjust. So a lot of people will use uh, reference tracks to to do their mixing, but they don't. A lot of people don't know why they're using a reference track, and that's the thing. Is like, well, if you listen to, like, say you're trying to mix, you know, the next great pop hit, and let's say, okay, well, Dua Lipa is pretty huge right now, so you want to listen to what a Dua Lipa track sounds like, and you're listening to it, but do you know how to translate what you're hearing to what you're mixing? So that's where critical listening comes in being able to, to learn how to hear. And that's also the first step in learning frequencies. Like once you learn how to hear and what to listen for, then you can, it, it makes it easier to learn frequencies. So the three-step process I teach is the hit production process. The first step is hearing. The second is identifying the frequency that you need to adjust. And then once you identify that frequency, knowing how to tweak it with EQ. And then it's, you know, like I said, the frequencies is the hardest part of knowing how to EQ. So once you, you understand what frequencies um, you can recognize them, then you know exactly where you need to go in, in that, that uh, track or that mix to make it less muddy or to add more punch or to open up space and clarity. Oh, what's up, guys? So quick intermission from the podcast so I can tell you about an awesome free gift that I have for you. I wanted to share something that's not normally available to the public. They normally reserve for our $5,000 clients that we work with personally. This is a presentation called Six Steps to Explode Your Fan Base and Make a Profit with Your Music Online. And specifically, we're going to walk through how to build a paid traffic and automated funnel that's going to allow you to grow your fan base online in a system designed to get you to your first $5,000 a month with your music. We've invested over $130,000 in the past year to test out different traffic sources and different offers and really see what's working best right now for musicians. And so I think it's gonna be hugely valuable for you. And so if that's something you're interested in, in the description, there should be a little link that you can click on to go get that. And uh, the other thing I want to mention is, you know, if you want to do us a, a huge favor, one thing that really makes a big difference early on when you're creating a new podcast is if people click subscribe, then it basically lets the algorithm know that this is something that's new and noteworthy and that uh, people actually want to hear. And so that'll help us reach a lot more people. So if you're getting value from this and you get value from the free trainings, then if you want to do us a favor, I'd really appreciate you clicking the subscribe button. All right, let's get back to the podcast. Cool. Awesome. So step one is, is really about mastering, like, like actually listening, not just hearing, but actually critical listening. Yeah. Cr critical listening. What's like, what, what's step two from there? Step two is, is identifying the frequencies. Yeah. Okay. So, okay, gotcha. so first so, you learn, you learn how to listen. And then once you, you start to be able to focus your hearing, then it's easier to learn, learn the frequency. So you can identify frequencies that are, are clouding up your mix or, or causing a problem in your mix. Yeah. And then okay. once you understand the frequency, then you tweak it with the EQ and that's step three. Okay. Gotcha. Awesome. So it's like step one, identify, listen, critical hearing. And then two is about kind of matching that with actual frequencies. And then step three is once you understand what the frequencies are, then you can start to play around with those. Awesome. So one thing I remember that you had mentioned briefly when we talked last time was about compression and how compression is easily abused or easy, mm. it can be like overused. And so I'd love to hear a little bit about compression as well. And, and what are some of the, the misconceptions that you see with it and how can you really most effectively use it? 
Yeah, um, compression for some reason right now, uh, compression is is like a, it's almost like the fad. Uh, everybody is compressing everything, and you know there is a certain level of compression that's needed. But when it's when it's not used correctly and when it's overused, it will suck the life right out of your mix. Um, you know, compression originally, you know, is to control the dynamic range of a signal. So, say you have a bass player who you know is really uh, dynamic. It's like some of you know some of the the notes are really soft and then he gets starts digging in and it gets really you know uh slappy so what you're doing is you're compressing that so that you basically limit the dynamic range so that you still have enough signal when he's playing softly but when he starts digging in it's not going to clip your signal so you have a little bit smoother sound same with a, a singer if you have a singer who goes from singing very soft to to really screaming into the microphone well when you set your your gain um the signal level for the the soft parts when they start really wailing in the microphone, it's going to clip and you're going to get distortion, which you don't want. So compression is, is used to smooth that out and kind of pull things together. But I think people tend to, what they're, what they could be doing with EQ, they're trying to do with compression. Um, they'll, you know, build a drum mix and then squash it with the compressor to try and get it more punchy. And what it does is it'll make it a little bit more loud. Yes, but you can get that attack and, and that punchiness from EQ and still save your dynamic range and have, you know, a, a more open uh, sound to your mix as opposed to something that sounds very compressed and boxy. Else, and people will just layer and layer and layer compression on signals, which, you know, if you need two or three levels of compression, there's something wrong in your signal chain, you know, really one, maybe two, you know, one to control the dynamic range and maybe one for a little bit of flavor or color, but two or three, when you get past, you know, two levels of compression, there's something wrong. I think it's because of, you know, there's so many great plugins out there with, you know, you've got the SSL compression, you've got this compression, you've got that compression. People want to play with the toys, which is great, but the thing is, it's like compression should be like the icing on the cake. You know, once you've got a good foundation and a good mix happening, then go in and add compression for, for you know, creative effects or, or flavor. But you want to start with the good mix first. Otherwise, you turn your mix, you know, that could be a big, wide open, beautiful mix into something very small and boxy that just doesn't breathe and has no life. Mm, gotcha. Okay. So, so it sounds like what you're saying is that you know, compression is a lot of times it's better used as sort of like icing on the cake and not necessarily to make drums more punchy because you can do that with, with EQ. And if you try mm -hmm. to do it through compression, you can just kind of crush the life out of it and uh, not really even fix the root, the root issue of it. You're just making it louder. So just out of, out of curiosity, like let's say that you're looking to treat like a vocal what's your kind of go-to and I, this maybe this like changes based on you know based on the the source but what do you say is like a normal kind of uh signal chain in terms of like do you do compression like eq first like very first thing you do is eq you like you fix any issues and then like you do compression after that and then you do another compression for flavor or what would you say is kind of like a somewhat of a standard signal flow yeah. So on a vocal, I would take a typically EQ first, then compress. Um, Cause I'm never adding with EQ on the vocal. I'm always basically with EQ, you really want to um, cut first before you boost. That's kind of a rule of EQ. Like a lot of people tend to like, oh, my vocals are muddy. So I'll boost the, the high end. But what you're doing is you're eating up the frequency range. So now you're, you're, you're creating, um, you're taking up space for other things that would normally be present in those frequencies. So that's where your mix starts to get cluttered. So what you should do is first cut the mud, like cut out the frequencies that are muddy. And then you usually don't need to 
add anything to to get the clarity. Your vocal will just open up and be nice. So so I'll cut first and then do some compression just to kind of, you know, smooth out the signal. A lot of times, especially when I'm uh, mixing live, I'll use like my favorite compressor is always the Empirical Labs Distressor. So I'll set the compressor and um, do also a lot of writing on the fader because I don't want to squash it. I still want to have that dynamic there. And I'll find that I can react, you know, especially when I, it's an artist I've been working for, for a while, I know how they're singing. I know their, their technique. I know when I'm going to need to, you know, pull them back a little bit. So rather than really crushing it with the compressor, I'll do a lot of manual writing of the fader in the mix. And then, you know, sometimes I'll do a little bit comp of compression over the left and right but just to keep things kind of glued together rather than squash it so I can crank it up. Now, an example of when you would use compression before EQ would be sometimes on your drums, depending on the, uh, the sound of the, your drums that you're going for. Like if you're going to compress your kick drum, because kick, you know, that's a typical drum that can be very dynamic. You have a, a drummer who goes from soft to really hitting it hard. So compressing before the EQ, because a lot of times on a, on a kick drum, you might cut the low mids to get rid of the boxiness, but boost a little bit in the very lows for that, you know, that thump and maybe a little bit on the highs for some attack. So if you do that and then you compress, you're going to be compressing those frequencies. They're, they're going to trigger your compression. So you want to compress it. So you've got a smoother signal to work with first and then do your EQ because that's you know, where you're adding the flavor. But again, you, you want to be just to where you're, you're smoothing out the signal, not just crushing it. Mm, gotcha. Okay. That's, that's really interesting. So I'm sort of like an amateur, like I've like mixed, like when I've recorded demos, sometimes I'll mix myself. So this stuff is, is really, really interesting. So it sounds like what you're saying is like with drums, it, it sounds like the case, yeah, with, with drums, especially with compression is that the compression can really affect the character of the drums, especially. And so you can do a lot kind of creatively with the drums. Mm -hmm. Could you talk a little bit about that, that idea in general with like, with the attack and like the release times with the compressor and like, in terms of like drums, um, yeah, how that might, how that might uh, play across the different elements of the drum set, like a kick and snare and whatnot. Yeah. You know, if you're, especially with um, instruments in the low frequency range, like drums and bass, if your attack and release is set too short, it can, can eat up some of that low frequency. So um, it's, it's kind of a tricky thing where it's all, you know, you, you've really got to listen to it while you're adjusting. The best thing to do is just start with kind of a medium attack and release. And then while you're soloing up that, that instrument and listening to it, as you're adjusting your attack and release, you don't want to um, like very short attack and releases can also create this pumping sound. So if, if the attack and release times are too short, you'll hear the compressor kicking in and, and releasing while it's kicking in again. It's just, it's kind of like doubling back on itself because it's, it doesn't have enough time to open fully back up before it starts compressing again. Um, and that's something with, you know, uh, like a bass that can happen very often because bass players playing really quickly, it's, it's just not able to keep up with the signal. So it almost creates like a, a breathy kind of effect. Like you can hear it breathing, you know, it's, it's a, it's a strange noise. So fine tuning those attack and releases is, is important so that you don't create effects like that because they're, you know, they're unnatural and they'll, you might not know what's wrong in the mix, but there's something that's off and you can't really put your finger on it. And, and that can, you know, create that kind of effect and uh, you know, snare drums too. Like if you don't want to cut off your, your signal by, you know, having it 
it be like the release be too short or too long. So now you're, you're again, you're, you know, your snare drum, your drummer's hitting the snare and you're, you're releasing it before the next hit, or, you know, it's, it's, it's a fine tuning thing. So it's definitely like listening to each instrument while you're adjusting, starting with a, like I said, a middle, you know, medium attack and release, and then adjusting slightly either way for, for the sound that you're going for and for the particular instrument. Awesome. Yeah. So, so if I, if I'm kind of hearing you correctly and I, under, and I remember right, like in terms of the compression with that, so like the attack is going to affect kind of how sharp or how quickly, like um, how quick the, the compressor starts working. Yeah. And then the release is kind of like the tail end. And so it, that's one question I had. <laughs> it's great. Like I'm just asking questions for myself and hopefully people who listen to this do have the same <laughs> kind of questions, but like the, the release, I remember feeling a little bit confused by the release on compressors in terms of like do you want to like fine tune the release so that it's really on like a song by song basis with like the BPM where it's like, you know, you want the release for a snare, for example, to really kind of last exact, like, you know, almost exactly like to the next snare hit or you know, like, what's your process when you're like, when you, you throw on a compressor for a snare, for example, and then you just kind of like, you take the, the attack and you just kind of like feel it out. Or are you like, what are you looking for in that situation with the release and with the attack to make, make sure like, is it just based on feel now? Or is it like you're looking for it to, to accomplish something specifically? Yeah, no, I'm, I'm pretty much when I'm using it um, on, on drums like that, it's more just to to control the dynamics and the release. It's, it's not so much a BPM as it's just that that's how fast, like the release time is how fast the, the uh, signal returns, the compressor stops working and lets, you know, the signal return to wherever it was. So if you've got a longer release time, it's going to keep compressing for a little bit longer, you know, before it goes back to just releasing the compressor altogether. An acoustic guitar is a good example. Longer release times will kind of create a little bit sustain on the guitar you know, because it's still compressing while they're, they're strumming and, and, um, it, it, in a sense, it creates a, a bit of sustain. So if you've got like a very dry guitar or something that's really kind of dull sounding, you can actually add some sustain to it by longer release times in drums. I tend to probably knock out with real short, cause I don't want to cut off the, the low frequencies, but, but also, um, nothing real long. It's probably medium to short that I, I use because of the, the nature of the drums. And uh, honestly, like I, I use as little as possible. I'll, I'll use on, on a snare. I had a, a drummer that I worked with who did a lot of very dynamic stuff. You know, he'd play a lot of ghost notes on songs and then, you know, really hit this, you know, really hard snare hits on other songs. So I would tend to do more compression than I normally would just because I needed to, to get those ghost notes out in the mix without killing people. So when, you know, he'd play the ghost notes, you could still hear them, you know, in the mix of the guitars and the keyboards and everything else. But then when he'd lay into the snare, it wasn't going to take people's heads off. So I would do a, um, a bit heavier compression in situations like that. But in general, I, I don't compress the snare unless the drummer is just very, very dynamic on it. Kick drum, you know, and, and, and toms, I won't compress them either. Kick drum just, you know, slightly to smooth it out. So what I will do is build a submix of all of the drums. Once I have all my drum levels EQ'd and, and the levels balanced, then I will put some light compression over the entire drum mix just to kind of pull it together. But usually only like a, a ratio of two to one, no more than four to one, depending on the drummer, you know, just very light compression that just kind of glues it all together. Mm. That's awesome. Yeah, this stuff is super, super interesting. And I, and I know that like by design is kind of like in some ways we're, we're like talking about this. And I'm sure like, you know, when you're in front of a DAW and you're like doing these, you can listen to it. It'd probably be a little bit easier to communicate. But uh, I guess one last question for you that 
because I think probably a lot of people who are going to be listening to this are musicians who some, some of them are probably going to be super interested in like production and mixing and, and, and engineering themselves and like other artists. And then quite a few of them, I think, are going to be mostly mostly artists who are interested in mixing and interested in, in this as like a way to create better demos or a way to like to improve their own ability to, you know, to create create music. What do you feel like if someone had a limited amount of time and it's really important that they get the foundations or they get the fundamentals down as in terms of a skill set, like they want to create high, as high quality demos as possible for them. And then they might want to work with a producer or work with like other work with the team in order to like take it to the next level. What do you think are like the, the super essential skills that they should develop and kind of focus on uh, as, as an artist? Yeah, I, I think um, going back to again, like frequencies and learning how to listen is, is hugely important. And, you know, it's one thing, even if you don't want to record and, and mix your own music, if you're in the studio with a producer, you want to be able to speak the same language. You know, mm-hmm. if the producer, you know, you're mixing and you're dialing in your guitar tone, the producer's like, yeah, I think your, your guitar tone's competing with the lead vocal. So we should take out a little 630. And you don't have no idea what that means. You don't want to be like, oh yeah, okay. And, and then be fumbling, well, what the heck does he mean? And, you know, you're embarrassed because, you know, you, you're working with this big time producer who should, you know, you think he, you know, you should understand that. So um, I've had people tell me that I was like, yeah, I was so embarrassed because he's, he's saying this and this and this, and I'm just no clue what he's talking about. So, you know, being able to, to do critical listening, to, to hear those things and, and, and to know the frequencies. Um, and it helps you get what you're looking for all you know when you can communicate and speak the same language you can get what you're looking for and get the result you want a lot easier so that's a huge thing if you're recording yourself you know the the, bit, the most important thing is starting with good sounds from the source if you're recording live instruments you know that's that's making sure the drums are tuned and the heads are in good condition and you know your guitar tone is dialed in you, you've got fresh strings if you want you know that bright sound or if you want you know them a couple days in so that they're a little bit duller depending on the, the the sound that you're looking for but really putting some thought into what is the end result that I want. What is the op- the big picture that I'm going for, and and putting the time into pre-production to make sure you have your your sounds as crafted as you can before you even start recording. Starting with you know it's it's the whole garbage in garbage out. You know you take a beat up old drum kit. It doesn't matter how much EQ and how many plugins and compression you know compressors you add to it. It's still going to sound like a beat up old drum kit. You know so make sure your your gear is in good condition and and you know then choosing the right microphone. It's uh, and and you know if you if you want a nice big fat kick drum sound don't put a microphone that has a roll off in the lows you know because you're not going to get any of that low frequency so it's it's kind of like the fundamentals you know just understanding the the basics of of audio and music production it's not that difficult there's there's plenty of information out there that teaches that and it, and it doesn't take you know five years of going to a university or whatever to learn it it's it's just understanding that that signal flow and and how to get good sounds from the source and then get good signal into your DAW or into your, your mixing console. Awesome. Yeah, I, lo- I love the way that you described that too, in terms of being able to just communicate communicate with the producer and be able to speak the same language. Yeah, I think it's, it's especially for like for artists, if you're like, you have your own music business and you start to build a team around you, then like you need to have at least the basics or at least the foundations yeah. of an understanding of something so that you can communicate with it. So yeah, I think that's that's awesome. And so for anyone who is uh, listening or watching this right now, who's interested in, in learning more about this and diving deeper with uh, mixing engineering and and uh, EQ and compression, uh, I know you have a, a bunch of resources to, to help artists with that. So where do you recommend that they go to, to learn more? 
Yeah, um, my website is mixingmusiclive.com. And uh, I have a free newsletter that you can sign up for where I you know, send out lessons. And I have a blog with a lot of information um, on mixing studio and live. I have an ebook that's the five biggest mistakes you're making with EQ that will tell you how to you know, get better mixes um, with just EQ. There's a lot of, there's a couple of videos um, on gain structure and getting good signal into your DAW, things like that. But there's a lot of free resources there. And I occasionally have uh, free trainings online as well. So mixingmusiclive.com, you can find all of that. And you can also email me directly. Awesome. And, and so email you directly, what would be the, the best email address? It's michelle at mixingmusiclive.com. And that's Michelle with two L's. Beautiful. Awesome. So like always, we'll, we'll put all the links in the show notes so that you can get there as, as quickly and easily as possible. That EQ, the five steps um, or the five biggest mistakes when it comes to EQ, definitely uh, sounds very appealing. So I definitely recommend you know checking that out if you've resonated with any of this conversation. And um, Michelle, thanks so much again for taking the time to, to be here and to share what you've learned through you know, over 30 years of experience uh, mixing mixing sound. Thanks for having me. Hey, it's Michael here. I hope that you got a ton of value out of this episode. Make sure to check out the show notes to learn more about our guest today. And if you want to support the podcast, then there's a few ways to help us grow. First, if you hit subscribe, then that'll make sure you don't miss a new episode. Secondly, if you share it with your friends or on your social media, tag us. That really helps us out. And third, uh, best of all, if you leave us an honest review, it's going to help us reach more musicians like you who want to take the music careers to the next level. The time to be a modern musician is now, and I look forward to seeing you on our next episode.